I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. Well... Possibly even now things will change between uh, now and when the podcast comes out on Monday. But, Ed, can you commit to a prediction? I, I think the we, we've done the number crunching. The people with the algorithms are reasons to be cheerful are calling this election for Joe Biden. Oh, no, no. Sorry, I was talking about the Rubik's Cube World Cup, which is happening this weekend. Who do you think's going to win it? I wasn't aware of the Rubik's Cube World Cup. I mean, this surprises me because famously you you were the man who boasted that he could once do the Rubik's Cube in 90 seconds. There'd been one or two other things going on. Much like Donald Trump and his evidence of uh, uh, voter fraud, we've we've never actually seen it, though. We've never seen you do a Rubik's Cube in 90 seconds, so it could just be hubris. No, I promise you it's, uh, it's, it's, it's true. Now, go on. Tell, tell me what you're – what are you feeling? Did you stay up? I, I confess I did not stay up because I just sort of felt – well, A, I felt it would be too depressing because it wouldn't be resolved, and B, because, well, I just thought there's no point, and – and then I got up at five and was sort of pretty alarmed. Um, uh, somebody said it's like 2016, but in reverse. It sort of 2016 started off well, then went very bad. And this started off quite dodgy and then beca- has become a lot better. I thought that's quite a good description, actually. Yeah, I, th- I think so. I mean, um, you know, I think there is something very interesting. I wanted to I've got a couple of things I wanted to raise with you. I think one thing is that the news media... And I think Nate Silver on five the five three eight blog sort of let because they're associated with ABC News sort of basically said this. They decided that they would that they obviously thought a lot about what would happen if Trump made baseless claims that the election was being stolen from him. And it is quite been quite interesting that whether it is CNN, okay, maybe that's more predictable, ABC, National Public Radio. All of them have said, in quite strong terms, he's making claims without foundation that are untrue. They cut away from his ranty-pants, yeah. ridiculous thing on Thursday night. Um, I think the news media, who, who, who you could say have been a bit weak in the face of Trump, have actually done an, a really important national service. They've obviously seen that they needed to sort of circle the wagons when it came to the democratic process. And they've obviously really coordinated. I think it's really interesting. Yeah, same same with social media as well. To be fair, go on. I mean, Twitter flagging his tweets. Yeah, and putting sort of disclaimers on them. I think that is interesting. I, I always think that the mainstream television media tends to be more cautious. Maybe that's wrong. Um, and I just think they've obviously, you know, I I don't want to sound a bit too sort of pompous about it, but I think there is obviously a sense in which. People, you know that that question people used to ask before this election, and we, they may still ask it, which is, you know, who is going to protect the democracy when Trump says 
you know, the result is not the result. You know, can you rely on the Supreme Court? You know, I mean, some people say, can you rely, you know, what about the army? But, you know, I think the news media has obviously decided they have a role to play which is not to do both sides, not to do both sidesism. You know, on the one hand, the, the Democrats are saying count all the votes. On the other hand, President Trump saying there's a fraud going on. They haven't really done that. Which channel have you found yourself watching? Because I usually go to the BBC in these situations, but I've been addicted to CNN, even though I find it completely pneumatic. You know, if you think Sky News is pneumatic, um, CNN makes it look like BBC local TV in Norfolk. There's bits of music going off. There's graphics. There's huge screens. Four people on a split screen all discussing things at once. It's it's very high octane, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, uh, we've been watching CNN and my children actually have really got into it. And so they, they seem to be unbothered on Wednesday morning. And then they've really got into this. And I mean, it sounds terrible because it's such an important thing that we're talking about. But there is a sort of entertainment value that they they produce on CNN. I mean, it is quite whizzy graphics and sort of, you know. Do, do your kids like the fact that they've got a host called Wolf Blitzer? I did introduce them to Wolf Blitzer. I mean, <laughs> vir- virtually. Um, but yeah, so CNN and I've sort of 538 and then the New York Times. I know I sort of think the British media is sort of. You almost think it's a bit sort of prejudiced. It's going to be like a little bit behind. So you think you've got to use the American media. Do you know what I mean? It depends how sort of nerdy. Because I put um, Five Live on earlier on and to, to hear a bit like I was having a bath. And all of a sudden they started talking about something that was going on at Manchester United. I'm like, but what about the American <laughs> election? And not everybody is as nerdy about it as we are you you've got to remember that it's just something that people are interested in. it's rumbling along in the the background for most people and they just want to know when what you know when something dramatic happens but uh i'll tell you what i've been finding weird on cnn is when they obviously go to commercials in the states and there's these endless commercials presumably for pharmaceuticals and all their side effects over here we just get all these weird little travel films and the weather in stockholm i totally agree my my children were talking to me also. There was like a hundred years of the company Crayola. Yes, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and now they were like, what the hell is this? hundred years of Crayola. Why are we re- watching this? And I said, it must be the ad break in the US. Richard um, Quest on the future of mice. I, I, don't, I, I totally agree. I mean, actually, I'll tell you one thing, which I think is a, one of the most interesting facts about this election, which I think is, I think it's got quite long term sort of significance for for understanding what is going on um and i got it from 538 um florida voted for trump as we know but it also voted by 60 percent for a 15 dollar an hour minimum wage it had a referendum on a 15 dollar hour minimum wage which passed and the reason is that lots of the Trump voters voted for a sixty, a fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage. Mm. I mean, I think it tells you something really significant about, and I think is really important in amidst the sort of Biden victory, which is obviously absolutely brilliant, um, that we don't forget or fail to understand some, and I emphasise some of what what Trump was tapping into. Yeah. And that hasn't gone away and it and it needs to be spoken to. And it is really yeah. important this. You know, you know, it's people who are socially very conservative, um, who are voting for Trump, um, but but economically were in favour of, you know, 
a fairer, you know, fairer minimum wage redistribution and so on. Yeah, there was there was a sense I was getting from the polls in the run up to it, you know the suggestion of the landslide that America was about to. You know, wake up the day after the orgy and be terribly embarrassed and be like, oh, sorry about the last four years. Can we pretend it never happened? And um, that that isn't what you see. Also, in no sense do I want to take away from the great, you know, from the importance of this result and Biden's victory. But we should also be chastened by the fact that as I'm looking at the New York Times screen at the moment, Donald Trump is, is heading towards 70 million votes. I think that that's already the case. Yeah, you know, that is just very, very significant. I think the sort of hard work begins now, but boy, is it important. So what are we talking about this week then? Well, this week we're talking about the fact it's 12 months until the really important Glasgow summit around climate change, COP26. <laughs> Whoa, Christiana! <laughs> yes, that was Christiana Figueras, who is the architect of the Paris Climate Change Agreement, in the interview we'll shortly hear, reacting to the news that ABC had called the US presidential election for Joe Biden, uh, which happened uh, during our interview. Um, so, so be sure to stay tuned for that. But this week we're talking to Christiana and others about how to make sure the summit is a success. Even with Joe Biden winning, there's a huge amount of work to do and a huge amount at stake. We know we only have a decade to take major action on the climate crisis and the task at COP26 is to translate the one and a half degree objective of the Paris Agreement, i.e. stopping global warming of more than one and a half degrees, into concrete commitments from individual countries. COP26 was due to take, be taking place now, but was delayed due to the COVID crisis. That means in November 2021, the UK in Glasgow, the UK will be ho- playing host to the summit with a huge role to play. We'll be talking to Christiana architect of the Paris Agreement and friend of the pod, about how the result of the US election changes things and what success would look like next year. Then we'll be talking to Katie White from WWF. She was with me at the Copenhagen summit in 2009 when I was a climate change secretary. And we'll be asking her about that and also what role the climate movement can play in the next 12 months. Then we're talking to journalist Isabel Hilton, an expert on China, about their approach to the climate crisis and these negotiations including their major recent commitment to reach net zero emissions by 2060. And then finally, ending on an optimistic note in an optimistic week, we'll be talking to Josh Tregale, a youth climate activist who's involved in a project called MockCop, where young people are holding their own version of the COP summit later this month. And, uh, and, and shall we both agree this week to have no more Trump as uh, reason to be cheerful? Yeah, I think, I think, you know, for the world for America, for climate, for all of those reasons, I think we can agree that an end to Trump is definitely a shared reason to be cheerful. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Christiana Figueres. How do I introduce her? She, she's the architect of the Paris Agreement. She's the co-host of the brilliant Outrage and Optimism <laughs> podcast um, oh, thanks. I, I i accept a small role in persuading her that doing a podcast was a good idea totally um, a big role a big role actually and sorry but i have to interrupt your introduction because you know um first of all you very very much encouraged us to move in this direction uh when we were just sort of slightly considering it but for public record 
The first time that I even heard the word podcast, it came out of Tom Karnak's mouth. And he called me and he said, Christiana, I think that we should do a podcast. To which my retort was, what is a podcast? <laughs> so there you go for public record, total ignorance. And here we are. And it's amazing how popular these podcasts have become during COVID lockdown, isn't it? Totally. Now, Christiana, you are the architect of the Paris Agreement. On Wednesday, the US pulled out of the Paris Agreement, as they'd been planning to do under Trump. Um, Joe Biden has tweeted that day one he will be back in. Tell us about your emotions before we get on to all of the substance. But tell us about your emotions at this moment as as it looks that Joe Biden is the next president of the United States. Um, well, Well, obviously, for the Paris Agreement, it wasn't a goodbye to the Paris Agreement. Uh, on the part of the U.S. government, it was a hasta la vista, see you soon, because um, as uh, Biden has said, and Kamala Harris as well, they will rejoin uh, literally, I think, in their first 24 hours in the White House. And and it's very interesting that the legal um, construct of the Paris Agreement allows a government to do that, right? To either exit by executive order or to re-enter. So the dovetailing uh, will occur. Honestly, Ed, about my feelings, um, I was predominantly sad about the fact that the United States not only exited the Paris Agreement, which is, you know, only a legal step, but more than that, so sad about the fact that the federal government refused to move into the 21st century, that they absolutely were firm in in saying that as far as energy and transport is concerned, that they really want to hang on to the technologies of the 20th century. That only puts the U.S. um, at a huge economic disadvantage, and that made me sad. And they continue to decarbonize. That's the, you know, ironic part. The U.S. economy continued to decarbonize even after what, what I what I was calling the dark house, which is a White House that has no <laughs> light in it. I think we're back to the White House. Lights are on again, and we can uh, celebrate that. Uh, you know, science is back. Uh, the 21st century is being embraced, and above all, that the U.S. they will have to honestly, they will have to. Um, pick up their pace in order to catch up with other countries that have been moving pretty aggressively forward, but um, but all doable. So from sadness to joy and celebration, reasons to be cheerful. And 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 Christiana, tell us, well, because we've got this very big summit, and that's what we're going to be talking about th- coming up this uh, in a year's time in Glasgow, COP twenty six. Which will be the time when we and you'll talk about this, I'm sure about we've got to revise the Paris ambition upwards significantly. But how important is it before we get on to the substance of Glasgow? How important is it? What kind of a game changer is it to have the US in rather than out? Well, it is actually quite interesting that we had uh, many industrialized economies that came forward to put a long-term target on the table, and some of them even a medium-term target, in the absence of the United States, so not making independent. So the EU went forward and said, we're going to have a green economic recovery, the Green Deal. 
um, that will address both job creation, economic stability, and decarbonization of the economy because they have understood that that is all a an indivisible package. And they were the first ones that came out in the summer um, and said that's the way that we're going forward. Now, recently, we had China coming forward in September, President Xi Jinping, in person saying that China was committing to be at peak emissions before 2030. Interesting that he uses the preposition before and not the preposition by 2030. He said before 2030. He also said that China will be at net zero emissions before 2060. Amazing announcements. And then that was followed by Korea also taking on this long-term target. And then recently, Japan. Huge news from the prime minister. So interestingly enough, Ed, I think it will definitely help, uh, especially in other countries now outside of the G7, uh, more looking over to developing countries. Very difficult for developing countries to move forward if the United States is being so obstreperous. Let me ask you this uh, question, Christiana. We're going to get into the substance of what we need out of um, Glasgow, but but oh, what NBC say? and ABC have called the election for Biden. <laughs> Whoa, Christiana! <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'm so pleased to hear it from you. G. There is a G in the world. OMG. OMG. Finally, justice, truth, science. Oh my God. <laughs> so the election has been called, at least by some of the networks, for, for Biden. Yes. But, but you know, Ed, here's the thing it's not only about climate, right? It's not only about climate. It is the fact that. The last four years of the dark house have been so nefarious on so many issues, on human rights, on racism, on in, on democracy. So, yes, I'm happy that the United States is coming back into the Paris Agreement. But frankly, when you look at the full context of what has been destroyed over the past four years... Yes, the Paris Agreement and climate change is important. And in the long run, it's probably what we will remember the most. But in the short run, in the immediate term, we have to return to decency. We have to return to respect. We have to return to solidarity. And we have to return to equality. And that is what had my scream. It almost seems like a sort of come down to now ask you a (laughs) question about about, uh, 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 the detail let, let me ask you this question, though, because I think it's really important for our listeners to understand this. We have a big, even with Biden, we have a big job, don't we, to close the gap between the the ambitions of Paris to yes. keep global warming to no more than one and a half degrees and the bottom up pledges of Paris, which add up to something approaching There's different views about this three three degrees. Just talk about just talk about the scale of ambition that we need because because Biden opens the door but now we have to every country has to rush through that door and show the necessary ambition don't they 
Yes. The, the best way to understand that, Ed, is to understand the structure of the Paris Agreement. The Paris Agreement is not a static agreement. It is, it was built, conceived, and designed to be an agreement that will accompany us over decades. Because what it does is it charts a path toward net zero by, in fact, in the Paris Agreement, it says by the second half of the century. Now science has told us that's too late. It has to be by 2050. But it is a path toward. Think of it, if you will, as a marathon. You don't start the marathon at the start line and then go straight to the finish line without measuring yourself against every five mile um, check in to see how you're doing or whether you need another glass of water or anything else or half a banana if you if you need more energy. That's the way to understand the the Paris Agreement. The starting line was the first set, the first trench that was registered by countries in 2015. And that put together, if you um, aggregate all of those decarbonization efforts from 189 countries, you but and then stay there statically, flat, then you get to an increase of 3.7 degrees. Absolutely understood. But we knew that before the Paris Agreement was designed. And that is why the Paris Agreement says, right, Give us your, fir- your first best effort. Okay, wonderful. Now, five years from now, there's going to be another milepost. And five years from now, all countries have to come around the table, figure out, take a look, see what you've done, see where technology has moved, see how um, capital has shifted, and certainly what policies have been most effective, and then give us your second tranche, your second contribution. And five years after that, the third and the fourth. So every five years, there's a check-in. And that is what COP26 in Glasgow is. It's the first check-in after Paris. So it is absolutely key that all countries come to Glasgow prepared, having done their revision and their their analysis of what they were able to do in the first five slash six years, because it'll be six, and prepared to raise their ambition. So that is the walk back that everybody will be doing from now until COP26 to be able to come to COP26 with their next tranche. And Christiana, can I ask you about our role here in the UK? So we're hosting COP26. What should we specifically be doing in that role to make it a success? Well, first of all, it's, it is a very tricky role to play, right? The president of the COP needs to do two things at the same time. A, the president of the COP needs to set the example on climate and environmental responsibility. There's no way that a president of a COP, a country that is in the presidency, can maintain the respect of all governments if they're laggards. That just does not happen. So that's one role, to stay in the lead and to role model responsibility. At the same time, at the same time, the presidency has to remain neutral. That's the difficulty. The presidency cannot be indifferent to environmental integrity. They have to lead the charge on environmental integrity, but they have to be politically neutral. No pressure, UK, but we're all looking at you. <laughs> so so what sort of commitments should we be looking for from countries at COP26? If, if you had to say what success looked like, give us your vision of that. On the formal side, success would mean that all countries would come with an improved 
commitment or contribution, as it is called. It's called the nationally determined contribution. So an improved contribution over what they first registered in Paris. As I've just explained, that is the way that the Paris Agreement is structured. And because so many countries are taking net zero by 2050 long-term targets, they have to be aligned with that. They can no longer be aligned with zero net in the second half of the century, right? By definition, this is going to have to be a much more ambitious decarbonization of their economy. So that on that side. On the other side, Jeff, that has, um, that is sort of the surround sound context for the formal negotiations, um, is everything that, um, is being done today under the term um, the race to zero, to encourage all stakeholders, whether they are sem- subnational public sectors or private um, sector stakeholders, to also undertake their own commitments. Because the more that surround sound is, the louder that surround sound is, the louder and deeper and more ambitious that is, that gives those who are in the center of that the national governments, the confidence and the comfort to take on um, much more ambitious, nationally determined contributions. So I have high expectations for both. So, so Christiana, your podcast is called Outrage and Optimism, and I feel like you've always combined the right degree of both. This is we should we should end sort of where we started. This is a this is a profoundly optimistic moment, isn't it, in the face of something which is a very daunting global challenge. Yes, it is definitely optimistic, but but Ed, you know, it, we can't be naively optimistic. I mean, that's where the outrage comes in because we are so going to crawl under the wire, so going to barely crawl under the wire. Honestly, we should have been at this point 10, 20 years ago. So we're paying a very high price of delay. That is the problem. So, you know, let us, let us not celebrate here, uh, in an illusory manner. Let us celebrate, yes, that we now have a much better perspective for the next four years for sure. But let us ensure that we use every minute of those four years because every minute has to count for 10 minutes. Christian Figueres, it's always a pleasure to speak to you. Um, podcaster, author, architect of the climate successes that we've seen in the world. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Bye. We're going to talk now to Katie White, who is Director of Advocacy and Campaigns at WWF. Uh, And also, Katie, you were at COP Copenhagen with Ed. So I want to know about that. I mean, is it... Is it like a, a big jolly? Is it hedonistic? What's it like to be away at one, one of these conferences with an very, animal like Ed Miliband? Very, very hedonistic, <laughs> as you can imagine. It's a, the cops. It's a really bizarre experience. It's kind. I was trying to think how to describe it, and I guess it's a bit like walking into a sealed bubble, witnessing a scalextric track. Because it's going around really, really fast with all sort of darkened tunnels. And you don't know quite whether people are in those darkened rooms where they're doing a deal or whether they're just having a nap. And I guess the sort of underlying feeling is 
that of a family Christmas. You don't know at any point who's going to go off on one and who's going to feel like they've been left out. And then it's kind of peppered throughout with demonstrations, um, you know, people doing demonstrations. But it's really impenetrable. If you've never been before, you'd get in and you're just seeing these sort of various tracks, which is what they call them, going around really, really fast. And the language and all the acronyms is just completely impenetrable. So it's it's quite bizarre. I mean, the Copenhagen COP that um, Ed and I were at together was probably even more bizarre because there was loads of leaders there. And so the leaders were, and, and not usually you don't have all of these leaders, sometimes they come at the end, but they'd, they'd all decided to, to come and we had Obama coming. And they all walked around in packs together. <laughs> and the packs sort of walked in lockstep with them. So you kind of had like um, Medievev kind of walking around like a bit sort of, you know, uh, with a swagger. And then you had sort of Sarkozy, who was a bit more like he was on a catwalk. Um, and Gordon <laughs> Brown a bit more sort of, I don't know, like a policeman kind of walking like that. You, so, you're saying Gordon Brown doesn't walk like he's on a catwalk? Uh, no. He's not, he's not quite got the catwalk hit move as it stands. It was a great time. And I think, yeah, we, we learned a lot um, at that time. We did, we did make some progress, just not all the progress we wanted. I mean, the summit was not a great success, but it also ended up in the most bizarre way with at sort of three o'clock in the morning, Gordon Brown, Kevin Rudd and sort of various other people negotiating with the sort of junior environment minister from wherever you know and it was sort of it was this is what katie's talking about with the leaders and it was literally gordon sort of taking it taking over the chair of the meeting because the danish prime minister rasmussen was sort of having a few sort of challenges in terms of the overall summit and it was it was just the most bizarre it was the most bizarre sort of thing it was really bizarre um, we did actually get quite yeah, a bit agreed and i'm not sure at that point and i'm not sure to be honest whether it's because some people were struggling with the prime minister's accent and he was going <laughs> really fast and he was going everybody agree apologies for the bad accent but you know and then bang the gavel down and with all these acronyms a few things on a on a on a technical thing called mrv which is monitoring reporting and verification was agreed because you know and it went through quite fast so yeah, that was really bizarre. And then, and then I found you asleep in a room. Do you remember? I was like, we were like, where, where's Ed gone? And I was like, oh my goodness, where's he gone? I was going through all the delegation rooms. It was like four in the morning, and you were asleep on somebody's sofa. I mean, the whole thing was was very uh, not to be repeated experience. Yeah. Wow. No late night karaoke though. No, I'm afraid not. I am afraid not. Although I have to say, I've done, I think, five cops with various, I was a civil servant, so with different different ministers and as an NGO. And the ones that are in the sunshine are a bit more fun. Copenhageners, yeah. As you can imagine in Cancun, when at least you can start the day walking down the beach, that was just a bit more fun. Well, I'm not sure how that bodes for COP26 then. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, t tell tell us how you're feeling about it. What's what's your sort of sense of uh, outlook? Um, are you feeling are you feeling hopeful? Are you optimistic? Right now, with the Biden result, it's feeling better than it's felt <laughs> for a long, long time. 
in March, we just before lockdown, we did we gave evidence to the Foreign Affairs Committee, and I was just like, we're just nowhere. We're not ready. Nothing's. We've not got the investment in the diplomacy. There's the geopolitics is poor. This is just gonna. You know, I can't see how this can come together. And actually, everything being delayed is has been a real blessing. Um, the Chinese announcement is really good, really good. Um, the you know, and hopefully when they come forward to the details, that that you know will we'll move things forward even more. The Japanese announcement, and now the US. Um, just really feels like we're in a lot better place, the geopolitics. So right now, feeling pretty good. I guess my one sort of gut worry is they've got a year to go and it's a case of, you know, how are they going to use this year? Because there's a real test now. We've got to, you know, we're going to have lots of stimulus packages. Are those packages going to be green or or not? And if they are green and they're really good and we take, you know, we make the best of this crazy situation we're in and really accelerate that transition, then I think that'll put loads of momentum into the system and it'll build on this and we can build on Biden and it could be really exciting. The other option is that it's not that great. It's a bit of a damp squib. We don't really capitalise on that and, and it all sort of filters away and the expectation is too high and we can't quite deliver on it. So I think there's, there is reasons to be cheerful and optimistic, but at the same time, we've really got to think about where we've fallen down before and make sure we're capitalising because the science is still terrifying. You know, we do have a window, but it is a very narrow window. We can't be messing around. We've got to, we've got to move with this. We've got some fairly good cards to play. We need to work with them. And Katie, you've you've referred earlier to the delay prompted by COVID, and and you've sort of saying that that the UK now obviously has a year to, to to sort of build up to the summit. How do you think COVID is is affecting the chances of success at COP twenty six? I mean, on the one hand, it's diverted governments elsewhere, but on the other hand, it's super powered the case for a green recovery, hasn't it? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean. You're right. And I really worry about their bandwidth to to be able to, you know, and understandably their bandwidth as it stands at the moment is focused on COVID. But it very quickly, as we know, this is, uh, you know, it's, it's a health and economic crisis. Um, and so what's the response to that? Well, first of all, you start to look at, I mean, if you go back and look at what are the, the chances of pandemics being caused, well, a lot of that now is around nature destruction. So you're kind of like, well, on the flip side of making this not happen again, you know, you'd be wise to invest. At the same time, you know, on that economic crisis, you know, as you say, the, the green recovery and alongside COVID, you know, we've also got Brexit, you know, and we're coming out the other side of Brexit. And what does Britain's role in the world look like? Well, for me, I hope it's, you know, it's a great green Britain. You know, that for me is a positive vision. What can it look like on the other side? And can they tie this all together and make us, you know, feel like we're, we've, we've got a plan and we've got a route out of this? Last question from me, which is talk to us about the role of the movement, uh, the role of the climate movement in the run up over the next year. Obviously, the movement will face its challenges because of COVID, at least for the next six months and possibly for more. Um, But but, you know, one of the things I think you and I both learned from Copenhagen, although it was really, you know, a problematic outcome is the role of the movement that was mobilized which which turned it into a into a big deal now that had its downsides but it also had its upsides because it did increase pressure on politicians and others so talk to us about the role of the social movement yeah i mean i think 
NGOs have got a, a crucial role. Um, and I think we need to assess, as, as you said, what we've done well in the past and what we've not done well and how we can be as effective as possible in the run up to this to this climate conference. Um, I mean, we do, you know, we we create political space in many ways for, you know, that's the idea. You create political space. You 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 create that groundswell of support that the governments can then step into and take action. And then I think our role is going to be twofold. It's going to be making sure we keep our eyes on the prize. You know, what is that ambition? How is that focus? Are we actually delivering? Because we need to be able to say at the end of the day, does this deal you know, put us on track to tackling dangerous climate change, yes or no. We need to be able to focus and keep our eyes on that science and that prize. And then at the other end, we need to be really practical about what does this mean? You know, like you've signed up to this big number, you've signed up this deal, what, what is actually going to happen? So I kind of feel we need to look up at that prize and down at the granularity and making sure we're holding to account and we know it's difficult and we know for politicians to make these decisions. So we know we need to create that space, but we also need to to shine a light and shine a mirror on what needs to happen. Well, look, um, Katie, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Um, I think we can all feel much more optimistic than we did a week ago um, about the prospects, but at the same time, very, very aware of you know, the huge amount of work that now has to be done. Obviously, WWF and you, you will be, you'll be leading a lot of that work. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Now to talk about the role of China uh, in relation to COP26 and, and to climate change, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Isabel Hilton, who has been an incredibly distinguished journalist for a number of outlets and is now CEO of China Dialogue, a website reporting on China and the environment. Isabel, thank you so much for joining it's us. It's a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. I, th- I can't resist but start with asking you about how China will view the prospect of the end of Trump and the and President-elect Biden. What do you think they will be the will be the reaction. Quite a mixed reaction. In many ways, uh, China has seen an enormous opportunity with Trump because as as Trump made uh, hay havoc, uh, I should say, with global alliances, it created an enormous opportunity for, for China. And the, the chaos that Trump inflicted on the American political system also allowed China to say to its own people, look, these democracies, they are such a mess. You know, look at us. We got rid of COVID uh, in a matter of months. The United States has made a a terrible mess of this. Uh, We are in economic recovery. The United States is going to have a serious downturn. And look at the politics. Aren't you glad you've got the Communist Party at the helm? That said, I think, like many others, China is a little tired of the drama and would certainly welcome a steadier geopolitical 
context, although it doesn't have great expectations that Biden will notably improve the relationship between the US and China. They think that is set and it's going to be hostile for some time to come. Now, let's talk about China's net zero pledge made in September, which is the pledge to be carbon neutral by 2060. Talk to us about how you view its significance and the thinking behind the announcement. Well, I think it is hugely significant. Um, And it's significant because this is actually China's first long-term carbon neutrality pledge. So to set this target, which is an explicit mitigation target, is a real shift of of China's focus. Um, It's also an unconditional target. And that means it's not contingent on action by any other power, by which, in this context, we normally mean the United States. Um, and that's important, uh, because China has tended to be to, to say, well, look, we'll do X if you do X plus Y. China, as the world's biggest emitter by a very long way, uh, really needs to undertake um, unconditional action. And that means that the world's biggest, uh, second biggest economy is is now formally committed to an energy transition. And that's that moves markets. That's a really, really big shift. And talk to us about the extent to which this reflects a shift in thinking on the part of the Chinese government. The, the thing about China's relationship to uh, climate and to the global negotiations on climate um, is that it, it pretty much tracks China's economic and industrial evolution. So China, as you know, is a signatory, was a signatory of the Kyoto Protocol. Uh, it was a non-Annex 1 signatory, which means that it, it subscribed to the protocol, but it was not obliged to take any kind of legal action. Uh, it was committed only to what were called nationally appropriate mitigation actions. So it basically said developing countries do what you can. Developed countries, which are primarily responsible for the problem to date, have a bigger obligation and a bigger capacity to act. But if you think that the Kyoto Protocol was um, was signed in 1997, China's own very explosive double-digit growth had hardly begun then. I mean, it had begun, but it didn't really take off until China joined the WTO in 2001. And then it goes off like a rocket. And in the first decade of uh, of this century, China's uh, emissions doubled and it became the world's biggest emitter around 2004, 2005. And the emissions went on rising until last year, China accounted for 30% of global carbon emissions. Now, in between the Kyoto Protocol and Copenhagen, which you will remember well, the anomaly, if you like, of, of China's status as a non-Annex 1 country simply became too big. It, it, it was a really disruptive factor. By the time we get to Paris, China is a constructive player again. So what happened exactly? Well, one thing that happened was that, uh, like a lot of Asian tigers, like all the Asian tigers, essentially, or or any country that followed that model of industrialization, it starts with a decade or two of very low added value, uh, very, uh, very high growth. And essentially, you're moving a rural population into the cities and into the factories. You're leveraging such advantages that you have, which are are often low cost uh, wage labor, 
um, in China's case, a relatively educated population and a large population, which enabled China to become the factory to the world after it joined the WTO in 2001. But the emissions cost of that was very high and the pollution cost of that was very high. And in in the end, really quite quickly, that model runs out of steam because you price yourself out of your early advantages. And so China began to look at the technologies of the future and started to invest in them. So from the 12th five-year plan onwards, we are now finishing the 13th. So that's 10 years ago. China has been investing heavily in low-carbon technologies uh, across the board. So wind and solar, the renewables technologies, but also electric vehicles, batteries, the whole gamut of what you need to, to, um, to equip uh, an energy revolution and a climate revolution because China wanted to be, and, and, and largely is, the supplier of goods and services to a carbon-constrained world and a world which could make that transition. So that in parallel with a growing commitment to to climate change negotiations and the whole architecture of the UNFCCC, China was aligning an industrial policy so that it would do well by doing good, if you like. It was going to be, it bet its industrial future on an energy transition. And, and so that's really... China's commitment to climate change is not in doubt. We can quarrel over the speed of its domestic mitigation actions. But if you look at the alignment with its industrial economy and its planning, it, it, it's really important. So, so all that in mind, what do you think that the Net Zero Pledge tells us uh, uh, about China's approach to COP26? What, what do you think we could reasonably expect to see from them? I think we there will be an expectation, obviously, of a rather more ambitious, uh, nationally determined contribution. Uh, you know what what China put on the on the table in Paris was okay, uh, but it it wasn't exactly a stretch. But I think that there will be rather more expectation now that the uh, twenty sixty goal has been set. That said, uh, we won't really know, I think, until the 14th five-year plan is revealed, and that won't be until uh, early next year, so February, March of next year. What we understand so far of what might be in the 14th five-year plan seems to suggest that it'll sort of, that that the expectation is that it'll go much faster after 2030, not so fast up until then. And how important is is it uh, for china to be seen as a leader on this um above and beyond its own interest and its own, its own plans i think it's it's hugely important xi jinping has you know been xi jinping's message to his own people is is a, a slightly more refined message of, of a version of trump's if you like it's make china great again it's you know restore china to its rightful position in the world uh, the superiority of the chinese system look how well the party has done for china and so on so uh, so to exert leadership in something is very important and china's quite keen as far as the rest of the world goes, to be seen as a benign power. And if you think about it, it's been a very difficult year in that respect. And China's reputation is frankly on the floor at the moment between COVID, Xinjiang, Hong Kong. There are relatively few issues on which 
China can plausibly claim benign leadership. And climate is one. I mean, it, it, it can claim it. It's not, it hasn't actually exercised benign leadership yet, but it has the potential to do so without causing a conflict with domestic policy. Almost everything else is much, much more difficult. Can I just ask you about the Belt and Road Initiative? One of the things that countries like the UK have been accused of doing is is exporting our mission, emissions. So it's essentially sort of importing goods from other countries um, who, who will be producing higher carbon, but then as we measure carbon emissions, we measure them by what we produce. And so it looks like our carbon emissions have fallen by more than they have. Now, there's a um, an absolutely massive, massive uh, set of infrastructure plans that China has got called the Belt and Road Initiative, which is about linking up Asia and Africa and Europe to China. Um, and I think, you know, I think I'm right in saying that 25% of global emissions, excluding China, come from Belt and Road countries. And you know, there's quite a lot of investment in or there's been issues raised about the extent to which China is investing in coal fired power stations and other things on the Belt and Road Initiative. Talk to us about that and the extent to which what that says about sort of China's global footprint, if you like. Well, you're absolutely right. It's highly problematic. Now, if you have something like the Belt and Road Initiative announced in 2013 by Xi Jinping as a kind of massive plan to invest in infrastructure and energy projects across uh, across Asia, across Central Asia to Europe, but now including um, South Asia, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Africa, um, Latin America. And there is a big disconnect between China's declared policy domestically, which includes things like the circular economy, eco-civilization and so on, and what actually happens with external investment. Um, China is still a major builder of new coal-fired power plants um, across the Belt and Road, probably the biggest uh, at this point uh, in the world. And so in doing that, it's locking in other countries into a high-carbon trajectory This is extraordinarily unhelpful, but it's really something that China has to get hold of uh, or, you know, everyone's efforts are in vain. Well, look, Isabel Hilton, um, your expertise is absolutely brilliant. And I know from my own personal experience, invaluable to the whole issue of of the environment and climate change uh, and indeed your understanding in particular about China. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your insights with us. And it's been it's been a, a great pleasure. Thank you. We're going to speak now to Josh Trigale, who is an 18-year-old climate activist and event coordinator of Mock COP26. Josh, thank you for coming on talking to us. And uh, I, I suppose the first thing we want to know about is Mock COP26. What is it? Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, Mock COP26 is a youth-led climate conference um, that's going to be run online to fill the void left behind by the postponed COP26 conference that should have happened this November. Um, and it's really designed to give young people a, a, a way to give their voice and their opinion about how they feel countries should be dealing with climate change. And it's going to be a, a real illustration of what would happen if young people were in charge, um, if the youth were the decision makers, what decisions would be made when it came to climate change. And how did it come about in the first place? How did this idea of re- re- replacing this postponed COP happen? How did people start talking to each other? Well, I'm part of a group called Teach the Future, which is an environmental campaign to put climate change on the national curriculum here in the UK. 
Um, and we'd read in the news that COP26 had been postponed. And there was this sort of sense of disappointment that governments around the world didn't think it was important enough to talk about climate change um, and that they felt able to just postpone it till next year without putting anything in place to, to replace it and to continue the conversation. And so we were just having these sort of conversations about how we were a little bit frustrated that it had been delayed by another year. Um, and somebody said out of the blue, why don't we run our own? Um, and at the time, it just sort of felt like a bit of a funny idea that somebody said, oh, why don't we run our own? Um, but we really liked the idea. And in August, we'd come up with this uh, this idea and we wanted to push it. So we'd opened applications for uh, volunteers from around the world. And so by the time it came to September, we had roughly 100 volunteers from around the world who were really passionate about this and wanted to make it work. And it was at that point that we realised that this was going to be quite a big thing. Um, so we started to put together a sort of student staff team um, and, and from there, it's just really grown. Um, we had over 800 applications to take part in the project. Um, we've got people from 145 different countries who will be representing their own nation. Uh, it's really exciting. And what format will it take? Will it be sort of huge Zoom calls? What what will Mock Cop look like? And you know, and and how will people be able to engage with it? Yeah, so it's sort of split into two weeks. Um, the first week is going to be panels, speakers, discussions, and there'll be policy ideas, and we'll be hearing from youth activists around the world. And that week's really designed to sort of educate and inspire people so they can learn about new ideas, new policies, new ways of doing things that might inspire them or educate them about action that they can take. Um, so anybody in the world can join in and watch this. Um, we'll be live streaming it on YouTube. There'll be videos left up um, after the event so people can engage with it as they like. Uh, and then in terms of coming up with our sort of high level statement at the end of the conference, like would happen at a COP conference. So we've sort of arranged it that we're going to have set seven separate calls that happen. So there'll be countries grouped by time zone and they'll be discussing the policies, the ideas that they would like to see implemented. And after each day, the ideas and um, suggestions from these seven different calls would be collated to make one international one. And then each day that will go back and they can make changes and amendments. So in the second week, that's really when the conversations and the discussions start picking up. And Josh, t tell me this. We're obviously now about a year till the time that COP26 is going to happen. Um, how do you think your mock COP can then sort of take forward, if you like, the pressure on governments for the for when COP26 does finally happen in Glasgow? Yeah, that's a that's a really key issue that we've been trying to um, overcome. And one of the ways we're trying to do that is that our statement that we make at the end of the two weeks is going to be we're, we're working with lawyers and with environmental um, legal professionals, and they're going to be helping us uh, writing our statement into a way that is legally worded. Um, so we can actually lobby during the next year for governments to implement it into law. Um, so we could be, we'll be trying to support delegates um, through the year from uh, COP20, mock COP26 until COP26 in Glasgow to talk to their elected representatives and to talk to their COP26 delegates that are from their own country. And you've been involved, obviously, in this mock COP process. Um, uh, you talked very interestingly about sort of getting involved in it and so on. What surprised you the most about it? I'd be, I'd be interested to know what 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 have you kind of learnt maybe the most, and what surprised you the most? Um, I think the thing that surprised me the most is the amazing community of young people that there are. Um, so, 
the supportiveness of all of the people we've worked with and the willingness for people to help has just been incredible. Um, we've had we've seen countries who are at war with each other and their delegations have been working together to come up with ideas. And just the idea that people can put aside conflicts that they might have and see that everybody is human and everybody is individually impacted by climate change and that's an issue that affects everyone. And they can sort of put aside ideas that, that they already had to just work together um, and we've also been blown away with the support that people have had for the project. Um, we, we really weren't expecting for it to be so big. When we first wrote the concept note, we'd aimed to have 75 countries and we've now got almost 150. Um, so it's just incredible the amount of support that people have, have given. Well, look, that is a very good note to end on, on what is a very uh, hopeful day for humanity. Uh, Josh, more power to you we really look forward to hearing the results of the mock cop thank you so much for joining us thank you for having me so jeff what did you think well i mean it's it's quite something isn't it just seeing what a difference trump not being president just how much joy that was bringing to all our contributors and what a positive bit of information that is for for the climate movement and how transformative that is and and what that might mean for cop 26 and it's incredible that yeah pretty much the the first thing joe biden has said is day one back in the paris agreement um it it sort of changes the whole playing field doesn't it well well well, let's let me put it this way imagine doing this episode if trump had had a clear win and was definitely going to be elected for another four years i think i, I mean we, what would we have been saying we'd have been saying well look we'd have been saying well look china is going to see it as an opportunity they'll move forward europe's really important but i mean you know we'll still put pressure on britain you know but i mean it would have been pretty bloody depressing it would, wouldn't it would it? and uh I, I was fascinated. I really love talking to Isabel. I found all the stuff about China fascinating um, and about how how they've basically come to the conclusion that's, you know, a, a Green New Deal or a green style uh, plan for their economy is the way forward for growth, which it's interesting to me that China's cottoned onto that and so many other countries aren't as, as an opportunity for growth. Completely. And... Uh... You know, I suppose the this is not a cautionary note at all. It's just more, uh, I guess it's partly the way that Christiana ended. We've got a massive task on our hands, even with Biden. The science is telling us, you know, we've got to have massive, massive ambition at COP26. And, you know, now the sort of, the, you know, Biden is, if you like, the first step Uh or sort of Biden is the is the kind of key that unlocks the door, making that possible. And now we've got to make sure it actually it actually happens. But 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 it's such a more optimistic place than it could have otherwise been. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Well look, we're in the outro. I, I feel like there's a question I need to ask you, which is um our podcast partnership was formed in the wake of Trump's victory. I think partly it was, I think it was March 2017 when you sent the original um, email, which was obviously, you know, three or four months after Trump had won. I mean, I'm hoping we can continue still in this in this Biden era. That hadn't crossed my mind yet. I was so wrapped up 
thinking about the uh, the uh, the immediate ramifications that I hadn't thought about the ripples. I mean, what do you think? Do you think there are there's, there's still a further need? Is there still a further need for optimism? Pod save reasons to be cheerful. You know, I think the world is going to be more different than we can realise. A bit like the world was more different than under Trump than we ever realised it could be. Do, do, do you know what I mean? I think, I think it's it's almost like maybe we didn't want to think about it maybe it's when the reality arrives it's just very much more kind of impactful than the than the potential sort of you know the potential i have a friend who um was doing phone bashing for the democrats in the run-up to the election and he was saying the only thing that had any kind of cut through with Republican voters was it'll just be a bit of peace and quiet. It'll be a bit of a return to normality. And I I think that's what's going to feel so different. Just having somebody there as leader of the biggest economy in the world who is behaving in a way that seems normal or dignified or befitting of the office. I mean, it does also, just to sort of put it in some kind of context break a line of defeats and i know america and britain are obviously not the only countries that matter by any means but you know 2015 which obviously i had particular stake in 2016 uh you know the brexit referendum uh also 2016 um 2019 you know there's there's quite a lot of you know quite a lot of stuff has happened um you know I do think it marks a sort of a potential turning point. Yeah, let's let, let's hope so. Should we should we thank our guests who were who and I think we you know we had we had four people who couldn't be more appropriate on this on this day. I'd like to thank Christiana Figueres, Katie White, Isabel Hilton, and Josh Tregale. Emma Caution produces our podcast. All the research is done expertly by Joel Pierce uh, with backup from Fanula DC and Zoe Gelber and Joe Kenyon. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made the eye dance and the artwork was designed by Henry Cole. He's been refreshing his browser. He's been too close to call. And these have been reasons to be cheerful. Reasons to be cheerful.